Today's scripture reading is Ephesians 6, uh, 10 to 13. The whole armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again, New Hope. It's good to see you all. I want to invite you to pray with me before we jump into this passage that Carolyn just read for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have sung to you. We have heard your words read to us. Lord, we've sung of your power and your love. And, and what we do now as we, as we consider your word more closely and, and try to apply it in some ways to, to the realities that we're experiencing day to day, we ask that you would still be worshipped. We ask that this process right now, that I would be worshipping you as I preach your word and that we would be worshipping you as we receive your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your willing sacrifice, your death on our behalf, where you absorb the judgment of your Father so that we would not have to, where you were rejected and punished so that we could be accepted, forgiven, and loved eternally. Lord, we pray that you would grant us faith in that gospel, in that good news. Whether we've heard it before or not, whether we came in here already believing it or we come in here skeptical about it, we ask that we would walk out of this place trusting in you and trusting in what you did for us on the cross. And we pray, Lord, that you wouldn't allow us to find hope anywhere else but there. Lord, we thank you for what you're going to do through our team that's about to launch into the mission field in Namibia. We entrust them to you, and we pray that that message of the gospel and of what you did on the cross would stand at the very center of everything that they do. And that all the love that they show and all the compassion that they show and all the patience they show towards one another and towards the people that they're ministering to would all be a flow out of the love and the compassion that you have shown them by dying on their behalf. Lord, give us wisdom and give us faith as we read your word and study it now. In your name we pray. Amen. So we've been walking through the book of Ephesians, this letter to a church, and we're actually coming to the end of this letter. And, and as this letter comes to a close, we find that the author, Paul, starts talking about the devil. He starts talking about Satan and, and demons. He starts talking about the supernatural and about this warfare that's hidden from our eyes. It's cosmic. And, and maybe that's, that's off-putting to you. Maybe you've been in church for a long time and you still don't feel comfortable hearing about the devil. It, it gives you mixed feelings. You're like, this is strange. Do we really believe this? Or maybe you're new to church and this is really odd to you. What do, what do you make of this? I, I want us to take just a, a moment to say, to, to explain why is Paul 
talking about the devil here. Later on, we'll consider what he's saying about him, but let's, let's think about why he's saying this. this. This section of this letter, the whole second half of this letter, is filled with lots of instructions. He, he tell, Paul is telling the church, he's telling us that we need to, for instance, here are some of the instructions he's given us recently, just as a kind of refresher. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, that we need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We need to walk with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Later on, he tells us in chapter 5, verse 1, that we as the church need to be imitators of God as beloved children. And we need to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Later on, he, he gives us some details on what that looks like. He says, part of what that looks like is rejecting certain sinful practices that were part of your life before you came to know Jesus. So he says, for instance, in chapter 5, verse 3, he says, sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness, they should not even be named among you. And later on, at the end of that chapter, in verse 15, he, he reminds us again, he says, you need to look carefully how you walk. Look carefully how you live. Don't live as the unwise, but as wise. And this is one of the ways we walk that out is by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, submitting our preferences to one another in love for Jesus. And then, and then he gets even more specific because the way you're going to walk this out, all these commands about walking wisely and walking in humility and walking in patience, all these commands are actually going to be lived out in your day-to-day -day relationships. Like your relationship with your spouse if you're married, your relationship with your parents or your children your relationship with the people in your household. It's going to be walked out in your relationship to your employer or to your employees. That's where you're going to live all this out. So after he gives all these instructions, we're meant to, in some sense, we might lose the force of that because we've been going through this week by week by week, but if you were to just sit down and read this entire letter all at once, the way it was meant to be read, then when you get to the end of chapter 5 or the beginning of chapter 6 and you've received all these instructions, you're meant to kind of step back and say, wow, this is a lot. This is hard. To live like this is actually really difficult. Now, why might you think it's difficult to live in that way? Why is it difficult for you to live out and live like Christ, for instance, in your marriage, or with your parents, or with your kids, or with your boss, or with your employees. Why is it so hard? We're likely to think, well, it's hard because you don't know my boss. He's really difficult. Or it's hard because my kids are really, they just really try my patience. Or you might say, you know, it's really hard for me to live this way because um, my spouse doesn't really love me the way they're called to love me. You see, we're, we're, we're likely to think that the reason it's hard to live this way is because of other people. They're the problem. Or we can start thinking that it's hard to live this way mainly because of just us and who we are. Like, I wasn't brought up to live that way. I'm not really wired that way. It's very hard for me to submit myself to others. It's very hard for me to be patient and loving and humble with others. And all that might be true. The fact is that the people that you're living in relationship with probably are not perfect. And they probably, because of their tendencies and their sins and their shortcomings, they probably make it hard for you to love them and live with them in the way you should. That's true. 
And it's also true that you yourself, just like I, have certain tendencies and sinful um, patterns of life and thinking that make it hard for us to live the way that God has called us to live. So the problem is other people in a sense, and the problem is us in one sense as well. But what the Apostle Paul is saying here, the reason these commands, these instructions are so hard to live out isn't ultimately just because you've got problems or because the people you live with have problems. It's because there's something going on behind the scenes. There's actually spiritual warfare going on, which makes it even harder for you to live the way that God has called you to live. In fact, he's telling us, look, if you... Living this way is hard because, why? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. You see, part of the reason it's hard to follow Jesus and live the way he calls us to live is because there's a battle going on. And ultimately, it's not just a battle between you and yourself. It's not just a battle between you and the people you live with. It's a battle that takes place in heavenly places. It's a cosmic battle. It's a spiritual battle between you and your enemy. The Bible calls him the devil. The Bible talks about the devil and talks about demons. That is, other. these are all created beings. They are all angels that have fallen. They're angels that have rejected God. Now, I know, even as I say those words, that they sound off the wall. They sound very odd to us because we live in a society that's largely materialistic. I don't just mean that we like things. What I mean is that we only tend to believe in things that we can see and touch. Those are the things we value. Those are the things we believe with. The Bible says, no, there's actually a reality beyond the reality of what you can see. So in order for you to live the way that God's called you to live, you're going to need to be equipped by God for this battle. You're going to need armor, he says. It's metaphorical language, and we're going to look more closely at that metaphorical language about armor throughout the rest of this chapter next week. We've broken up this passage into two sections, and and here's why. Next week, we'll look at all those pieces of the armor. We'll consider what this warfare looks like in the day-to-day for us personally. But this week, I want to consider this warfare a little more broadly. I I felt burdened to share this with you because it's something that's been on my heart quite a bit lately. I I want us to ask the question, how does this passage shape the way that we see the world right now? Our current social and political climate, how does this passage affect the way that we view things socially and politically in our country right now? The realities that we're dealing with. Some of us are very, very frustrated and we're angry. Some of us are scared because of what's going on in our nation. Some of us, that that anger is manifested towards people or towards parties. Maybe that anger is, 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 is manifested towards segments of our society or towards leaders over our government. Maybe we're just angry at politicians or maybe we're angry at other people. But they're, 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 we look around and we're maybe at least overwhelmed by just how bad things have gotten. I think that in moments like this, it's very good for us to remember that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. I want us to think about this passage against the backdrop of what we're experiencing in our nation today. 
about the political polarization, about racial violence, about terrorism, about all the many, you list the problems that are, that are worrying you. Let's consider this passage against the backdrop of all that. I want to see three things here. Three things. One, Satan is real. Two, you can stand strong. And three, Jesus is king. So first thing you want to see here is that Satan is real. Look, um, you or I might find it hard to believe that there's a personal, real devil and that demons really exist, um, but Jesus actually believed all that. He interacted with them. He believed that, that they are real. We might feel like we're too sophisticated to believe that. Maybe you feel like that's kind of naive. It's kind of an old way to view the world. Have you ever heard this, this quote? The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he did not exist. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he did not exist. The, the very, you know, it's, it's funny, this passage talks about the schemes of the devil, the strategies that the devil uses. I think this points to one of those strategies that the devil uses is to convince us that he's not even real. And I don't mean to mock you if you feel like it's hard to believe in the devil. Honestly, I don't, I don't think it's, it's an easy thing for us to accept. But what I want us to see is that the way that the Bible talks about evil and the way the Bible talks about the, the devil is not naive or arcane by, or archaic or, or ob, obsolete in any way. Instead, what the Bible does is it shines light on evil in such a way that we can understand it more deeply and find hope in the midst of it. So, Jesus cast out demons so he knew that at the very least, the devil and demons, they affected life in some very practical ways. In his day, as he walked about doing ministry, he encountered many people that were under the control, the physical control even, of these spiritual beings. But that's not the only way that he saw the devil influencing life. There's one place in, 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 in the book of Matthew where Jesus interacts with Pharisees. And he says to them, you are of your father, the devil. What, was he, what did he mean when he said that to them? Did he mean like you were spawned from Satan somehow? You're spiritual, spawn, spiritually spawned by him? No, I think what he means is he's saying you're, you're acting just like the devil. You believe his lies and you live the way that he calls you to live. So in that way, he also, the devil also influences life. As people believe lies that the devil tells and live accordingly. We read this passage a while back in Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, I want to invite you to open up to it again. Flip back to it, Ephesians 2, 1. It says there, this is, this is God speaking to Christians, to followers of Jesus Christ. He says, and you were, were, past tense, dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following, look, the prince of the power of the air. That's another nickname for the devil in the Bible. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What he's saying here is very interesting. It means that if you are a believer now, if you're a believer in Jesus, you follow Christ, there was a point in your life when you did not know Christ. And during that time, you were living according to the way you wanted to live. Living according to your desires, Paul says. 
you were also living in the way that the world lives. In a sense, like the way you were living was not extraordinary. It was just like the way everyone else in the world lives. It was normal, and it was according to your own desires. But what you may not have realized, Paul says, is at the same time, you were also following the prince of the power of the air. So you were making conscious decisions on your own. You were acting just like most people in the world live. And yet at the same time, from Paul's perspective, he says you were also following the devil. That is, in some way, you were, you were following his way. You were being influenced by him. You were living in the way that he deems right. You see, Satan influences in many ways, not just by possessing people in the way that we might see in the scriptures, but in other ways too. The influences are, are manifold. And the fact is that the Bible doesn't give us all the information we might want to understand how the dynamics of all that work out. But what it does do, what the Bible does do, is it comes to us and gives us a, a healthy, balanced way to approach all of this. And it starts here with us simply believing the simple truth. Satan is real. Satan is real. And he's not just real in your own personal fights with sin. He's, he's real and he's active in a broader sense as well. Listen to what 1 John 5 says. 1 John 5, 19. It says, we know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The evil one. That's another nickname for the devil that the Bible uses. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, we might think, what does that mean? The whole world is under the control of the devil? What does that mean? Well, I think for us to really understand what that means, we have to look a bit a little more closely. Look at what it says elsewhere in that same book of 1 John, chapter 2. I invite you to look at that with me if you want. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the, father, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of the God abides forever. So first John tells us, look, the world is under the control of the devil. It's, it's sitting in the lap of the devil, he says. And then he says, don't love the world or the things of the world. How do we make sense of that when elsewhere the Bible tells us, this very writer, John, tells us that Jesus loved the world so much that he died for the world? How do we make sense of it? I think what we need to see here is that the word world is used in different ways in the Bible. Okay, It's used in different ways. So here, when John is saying, he can't at one point say, don't love the world, and then tell us Jesus loved the world and mean the same world. It's not the same world. Okay? Two separate things. What John is telling us here is that there is, with the, the way he's using this word world here, is he's talking about the fact that here, in the reality that we exist in, there are systems in place. There is a system in place that is anti-God. It's opposed to him. It's a way of living that denies that God even is real or that he's good. It's a way of life that rejects and hates God. And that system, he says, is bound for destruction. It's going to be destroyed. World, in that sense, will be judged by God. But in another sense, the world, that is people, creation that God has made, will be redeemed. 
all those who believe in Christ will be redeemed and renewed. There are, there are ways of life and systems at work in our world now that are devised by the devil. I'll give you some examples. And, and, and think about this. As you look at the national scene or as you look at the global scene, remember this. Satan is alive and he's at work. Not just by, by possessing people, that's not what I mean, but by influencing. Every year, millions of unborn children are, um, are ripped from wombs and they're, they're, they're killed, they're destroyed. Is that If that is not a practice, the practice of killing defenseless children in the wombs of their mothers, if that practice and that system, okay, if that, if that, that, if that is not satanic, I don't know what is. If that is not of the devil, I don't know what is. Every year, millions of children are trafficked. They're bought and sold and used for sexual purposes and for other purposes. If that's not satanic, I don't know what is. It's of the devil. Am I saying that everyone, every, every abortion doctor or, or, or every, everyone who's trafficked a child is somehow possessed by the devil? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that the very system, the very practice itself is evil. And it will one day be destroyed. Every day, and this has happened throughout history, people have been oppressed, sometimes killed, on the basis of their race, on the basis of their religion. That is satanic. It's evil. It's part of that system that will one day be destroyed. It won't exist in the kingdom of God anymore. Just like abortion and sex trafficking will not exist, nor will racism or oppression exist. Corruption at high levels politically, corruption at low levels in police forces and things like that. Or the devil. I'm not saying that those corrupt politicians and police officers, are they themselves possessed by the devil or anything like that? I'm saying that the practices in which they engage, the way in which they're living is a reflection of the way Satan wants us to live. It's anti-God. That's what I mean. Pornography which runs hand-in-hand hand with sex trafficking. You can't have pornography without sex trafficking. Also, also, of the devil. It's satanic. Yes, it's people doing bad things, but it's more than that. You see, the Bible doesn't give us a naive way to just write away evil and just say, oh, it's all from the devil. No, the Bible actually accounts for the horrific acts of evil and the movements of evil throughout history. It gives us a way to make sense of it all. It's not naive. You see, the Bible tells us evil is not just a matter of bad people making bad decisions or good people making, good, making bad decisions. Terrorism. Mass shootings. Work of the devil. It's, it's satanic. And one day it will be destroyed. I want to give you, I want to tell you a story that I, that I heard recently. Um, Romeo Dallier. Does anyone know who Romeo Dallier is? He's a Canadian lieutenant general. Shout out to Canada. 
And he was a general and force commander of the United Nations peacekeeping force that was sent to Rwanda in 1993. And if you know anything about Rwandan history, or if you, or if you watched Hotel Rwanda, for instance, you know that in 93 and 94 there was a, there was a huge genocide, one of the, the most horrendous recorded genocides in history. Hutu extremists against Tutsi moderates and Hutu moderates, tribes fighting, people groups killing, and about 800,000 people at least were slaughtered. Dalier, this lieutenant general, was sent by the United Nations to help keep peace in the days leading up to that genocide. Dalier's a tough dude, and if you, if you listen to an interview with him or if you see him, you'll, you'll notice that right away. He's kind of grisly. He's, he's tough. He's also brilliant. He's, come, he's become something of an expert on genocide and on international policy. He's an he's a amazing guy in a lot of ways. Listen to the story he tells about an interaction he had with some of those leaders of the, the Hutu movement in Rwanda. He says, Bagasora, he's a uh, political leader, Bagasora brought me, and there were these three guys, Dalier says, three Rwandans. P- picture this interaction. He says, one of them was tall, one was medium, and one was smaller, who stood up when I entered. And Bagasora introduced them, and as I was looking at them and shaking their hands, this is a well-trained military man. This is an intellectual. This is a man of courage. Listen to what he says. He says, as I'm looking and shaking their hands, I notice some blood spots still on them. And all of a sudden, they disappeared from being human. All of a sudden, something happened that turned them into non-human things. This is stunning. And if you hear him describe this in the middle of a very normal conversation, in which in this interview, all he's doing is talking about international policies, talking about the dynamics of genocide and what the world can do to prevent it from happening again. In the middle of it, he tells this crazy story. He says, all of a sudden, I was not talking to humans, he says. I literally was talking with evil personified, maybe in those bodies and in those eyes, but they weren't human. And what was coming out of their mouths wasn't human. They were so proud of now being in discussions with the general of the UN, and they gave them great, it gave them great personal prestige, and they were elated at this situation, so elated that they found themselves in the situation. But everything that was coming out was not words of a human negotiation or a discussion. It was evil blurting out their positions and their arguments. I didn't see humans anymore. I was totally overcome by the evil. These three guys just brought it into reality, brought evil into reality. And by my religious background, he grew up in a religious background, he says the only way I could qualify that was being the devil. And he describes it as as the devil having come into this beautiful natural environment of Rwanda, this beautiful paradise of a place, having come into that place and taken over. And these three guys were the right-hand people of Lucifer himself, he says. And I couldn't shake that. Why do I share that with you? What was going on for Romeo Dallier there? Was he just freaking out? 
Was he having some kind of psychological episode? I suppose all that's possible. I read this, and I listen to everything else he says, and I think that for him, some of the reality of Ephesians 6, 10 through 13, came to life before his eyes. The veil was kind of removed a little bit, and he started to feel and see something of what the Apostle Paul describes for us. This warfare. What what do you make of this yourself? Is it plausible to you that genocide of the magnitude of what happened in Rwanda was certainly the result of political forces vying for power? It was the result of a history, a long history of hatred and prejudice, absolutely. But also, in on that, behind all that, on top of all that, there is Satan laughing. There is Satan accomplishing what he wants to see happen. Death. Sadness. Families ripped apart. We can switch out that story about Rwanda and place another one. Maybe, maybe it's Nazi Germany. Stick in there. Maybe it's another genocide. Maybe it's something else. Look, all I'm saying is this. Whatever you make of that story, the Bible is able to account for the horrific acts of evil and the movements of evil throughout history. The Bible is not naive. In the end, political strife, Genocide and all the other atrocities that I listed before. Yes, it's a matter of people doing bad things. But the Bible says, look, it's not just people. There's a bigger battle going on. And that's what Ephesians 6 shows us. There's a war behind the war. There's a bigger story behind the story. And so the Apostle Paul comes to us and says, look, if you're going to be able to stand up to these strategies, these schemes, he uses, of the devil... It's going to take some armor. It's going to take some preparation. It's going to take some power that comes from someone other than you. What are the schemes of the devil? What are his his strategies? We're going to talk more about this next week when we look more detail at the rest of this chapter. But for now, I just want to put out to you two strategies that the devil has. Two strategies. One is to encourage us to underestimate who he is and what he does. And the other one is to overestimate who he is and what he does. On the one hand, we're prone in some sense to a thoughtless cavalier attitude that says, devil, come on, really? Seriously? We don't give enough credit for the damage he's done. I don't know how we can read Genesis chapter 3 and not realize that he's created a lot of damage. But that's the error on the one hand, is to underestimate. But then the error on the other hand is to overestimate. It's to live in a kind of paranoia and fear because the devil is at work. He's prowling around like a roaring lion, Peter says. And so we give him too much credit, and we start to see Satan behind everything, and everything just paralyzes us with fear. Martin Luther described this phenomenon this way. He says, you know, human reasoning sometimes, it makes us into a drunk guy trying to ride on a horse. A drunk guy tries to get on a horse. He gets up on it, he falls over on the right-hand side. So he gets back up and he falls on the left-hand side. He gets back up and he keeps falling side to side. He can't sit there right in the middle. I think what Ephesians 6 wants us to do is to sit right in the middle, or rather, to stand. 
rather to stand. And that's where, that's where I want us to go with this next point. You can stand strong. In light of everything I said, you can stand strong. Look what, look what Paul says to us here. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Chapter 6, verse 10. He's not just saying, look, be strong, toughen up, man up, woman up. He's not just saying, hey, stay strong, find some inner strength. Where's your backbone? That's not what he's saying. That would be useless, frankly. He's saying find strength in your God. Find strength in your God. Yes, Satan is real, but you can stand strong. Why? Because you can find strength in your God. Look, these simple truths, these simple words here, be strong in the Lord, they speak, I want you to notice this, they speak directly to the two schemes, the two strategies that I just mentioned. When God comes to us and says, look, be strong, he's telling us, look, don't overestimate how powerful Satan is. Don't live in cowardly fear of him. Don't be paranoid about him. Be strong. Don't overestimate. But on the other hand, he says, in the Lord. In the Lord, be strong. In other words, don't underestimate him either. Don't try to stand up to the forces of evil in your life and in the world on your own. You can't stand on your own. You'll get distressed and frustrated. Isn't it it interesting how some of the acts of terror that have been perpetrated in our world, if you find out the stories of some of these young men who have perpetrated these terrible acts of, 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 of terrorism, many of them have very sad stories. They have encountered a great deal of evil in their life, and finally they're standing up to that evil. And how are they doing it? Through more evil. How are they standing up to the oppression and the evil that they faced? They're killing taking lives. You see, what happens when we try to stand up to evil in our own strength, we're either going to be crushed and depressed and frustrated, or we start to engage evil in the same way that evil operates. We start to battle with the same resources that evil uses. We want to strike back in violence. We want to strike back and kill. God says, no, no, no. Find strength in the Lord. He is our strength. It's amazing. how If you do a little word study, look up Lord and strength in the book of Psalms. And look at how many times the psalmist calls the Lord my strength. He doesn't just say the Lord gives me strength. He says the Lord is my strength. I find strength in him. He's my rock. He's my protector. He's my defender. He's my source of stability. And look, I... I, I i got to tell you this. If you're, if, you're, if you're sitting here and everything I've been saying about the devil seems really weird to you, I think at the very least you can, you can say this. There's evil in this world. And there's evil in you. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, then I want to encourage you to, to know that you can only stand up and face the evil in the world and in you if you first come and believe in Jesus Christ. There's no other way. The evil in you will overcome you. The evil in the world will overcome you apart from faith in Jesus Christ. You can only stand strong in him. You see, he keeps his promises. He's stronger than Satan. He created Satan after all. Before Satan became the evil, the evil doer that he is. And this Jesus, he's not done. He's not done. The story ultimately is still being written by him. 
And that takes us to the third point I want us to see here. Not only is Satan real, and not only can you stand strong, but the third point is this, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And here, really, I find this amazing. As the Apostle Paul is bringing us to the end of this letter, he's really bringing us all the way back to the beginning. Because if we go all the way back to the beginning of the book of Ephesians, we find that Paul's there talking about who Jesus is. And he's talking about the power of Jesus Christ and the authority of Jesus Christ. Look, look at this with me. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. Look at what the Apostle Paul says about God. And what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put, that is God put all things under Jesus Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, at the, we go back to the beginning of Ephesians. We find out, yeah, there's a Satan. Yeah, and he has power. But guess what? There is a Jesus Christ. There is a king who stands with all things under his feet. He stands in authority over everything. That means that there is nothing in the created world or outside of the created world that Jesus Christ does not point to and say, that's mine, that belongs to me. I have authority over that. Think about it this way. Jesus Christ took the worst that Satan had to offer and then he rose from the dead. At the point in history where it appeared Think about this in light of all the other atrocities we've seen throughout history. At the one point in history where it seemed like Satan had actually won. Like he had actually done his greatest deed. He had killed the Son of God. What was really happening there? What was really happening there? The king was laying his life down for his people so he could then come three days later and pick it up again and prove to the whole universe that Satan is defeated, that death is defeated. You see, at the cross of Christ, there are lots of stories going on. In one sense, bad people were doing bad things to Jesus. But behind that, there was more. Behind that was another story. It was Satan act, actively seeking the death of the Son of God. There was, a, there was a spiritual element there as well that was evil. But behind that, <laughs> there was something else. There's God himself working out his eternal plan to send a son who would die for us and then be raised from the dead to occupy the place above every place, to be given a name, as we sang before, above every name, to finally defeat and one day destroy not only Satan but all of his works. That's why we can stand strong, because Jesus is king. And, and, and Ephesians goes on to tell us in chapter 2 that we, if you are in Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus, then you are seated with Christ. Christ was raised up and seated 
He's resting from his work, and we, in one sense, are seated with him. But we're living in this weird kind of in-between time. In one sense, Paul says, you're seated with Christ. In the other sense, he's saying, you better wrestle because there's a spiritual warfare going on here. It's weird, right? It sounds almost contradictory. We're seated, but we're wrestling. We're in that in-between period. The already, Christ has risen, and Satan has been defeated. But there's also this not yet that still hasn't taken place. Christ hasn't returned yet. And Satan still hasn't been destroyed, but he will be. This already not yet period we live in is a very brief blip. Soon, soon, God's plan will finally be worked out completely. And there'll be no more wrestling. They'll be resting. (laughs) Resting in him. So look, as you read on through the rest of Ephesians chapter 1, or actually, if you read the passage before the one we just read, verse 17, we see a strategy. I want to I close with, with just two very simple strategies to engage in the kind of warfare that the Apostle Paul is calling us to. And we're going to get into more next week, but I just want to throw these out to you now and invite you to pray over them and think about them. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. The Apostle Paul says, He's praying. He's praying for the church. He's praying that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Here's one strategy for us. Let's pray Let's pray that God would open our eyes to the spiritual realities that we're actually engaging with every day and open our eyes to the spiritual realities that are going on on a global and national level too. It's not just about political parties. It's not just about bad candidates. It's not just that. It goes further than that. And and we're asking God to open up our eyes to see what? To see that there's actually... There's a story behind the story, and more than that, we want to see that God is at work by his power. So in the midst of what looks like a hopeless situation, in the the face of what looks like society that's crumbling, divisions are just growing stronger, violence just seems like it's on the upswing daily, in the face of all that, we need to pray, Lord, open my eyes to the fact that you are actually powerful, and you are actually at work in spite of what my eyes see. And the same power that's at work to bring Jesus back from the dead is actually at work in your church now. And that same power is at work on a global scale to one day bring to completion your perfect plan. We want to pray that the eyes of our soul would be enlightened to that. You see, we live kind of blind in some ways, blind not just to the evil around us, because we don't really want to see it. But we live blind to the glory of the power of God that's at work in the midst of all of that as well. So we want to pray for that. We want to pray that the eyes of our soul will be enlightened to see not only the schemes of the devil, but to see the perfect plan of God at work unfolding before our eyes. And here's the, last, here's the last strategy I'll give you. It's a very simple one. Like I said, we'll see more next time. 
But it comes from Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verse 23. Listen to what the author says there. Listen to what God says to you, church. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast to what you know to be true about God. Hold fast to the faith. Why? Because the one who has promised is faithful. Hold fast. And he goes on, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, I believe that in the midst of social upheaval and the depressing state that we're living in right now, I think we need to actually encourage one another with reminders that Jesus is at work and Jesus is coming back and he's going to set all things right. So in the midst of, yes, we should take every opportunity we can to push back against evil, whether it's through using our vote or whether it's through um, activism. And, and we should also lament and, 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 and groan and cry out to God, Lord, have mercy. I'm not saying pretend like everything's fine because one day it's going to be okay. No, I think God calls us to lament. I've said this before. God calls us to look at the state of things around us and lament and cry out to God. How long? We can't take this much longer. This is awful and it's getting worse. But in the midst of all that lamenting, in the midst of all the actual practical steps fighting back evil, we need to do this. We need to actually encourage one another. Say, look, God's actually at work here. He's present. He's not absent. He knows the schemes of the devil. He's got them all figured out. And he will one day bring all of the devil's schemes to ruin to nothing. Sometimes I think in the face of the depressing societal realities that we find ourselves in, we can, um, we can complain to one another. We can commiserate with one another. We can rail out against our opponents together. We can do all that stuff. And I'm saying in the midst of all that, I think we also need to encourage one another as the day draws near to remember that the story has not been, it's not done yet. Christ is still writing it. And we already know the end of this story. He will return. He will return. He will wipe away every tear and he will set all things right Every time we gather as a church here together and sing to Christ, we're celebrating that. We're practicing for what we're going to do when he comes back, finally. And we gather with all of his people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, victims of sex trafficking, holocaust, and every other number of atrocities. We will gather with his church and worship him together. We're practicing for that every time we get together and encourage one another and sing songs to him in this place. So let's do it with hope. Let's do it with hope. I invite you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can stand strong in you. In you. Lord, we thank you that if we have believed in you, then then we are yours. We thank you, Lord, that we can look to the future with confidence. We can lament and be sad and groan because your word tells us that when the evil rise... The people groan, and so we, we want to do that too. But Lord, we won't want to do it out of a place of out of a place of despair. 
We want to do it out of a place of firm confidence in you, our King, in whom we stand. In your name we pray. Amen.